Hey friends, I'm excited to share this conversation I had with Dr. Sandra Glan. Dr. Glan has written a great book called Nobody's Mother, Artemis of the Ephesians in Antiquity and the New Testament. She's done an excellent job in researching the Artemis cult. And if you're familiar with the New Testament or if you're a student of the New Testament, I think her book is required reading because she takes us back to the sources to show us how becoming familiar with the Artemis cult and all of its intricacies and all of its details, that we can actually come back to the New Testament to understand it and its message better. This was a fun conversation. I learned so much from reading this book, and I learned a lot from this conversation as well. I hope you enjoy it. Well, we're excited to have on the show uh, Dr. Sandra Glan. We're going to talk about her new book called Nobody's Mother, Artemis of the Ephesians in Antiquity and the New Testament. Sandra, thank you for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks. So, before we dive into the substance of the book, which, by the way, let me just start off by saying the book is absolutely excellent. Um, I learned a ton, uh, and it's a book that I'll need to keep going back to uh, time and time again. But just want to say thank you for writing the book. It's It was a delight to read. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so well, before we dive into the book itself and, and into the content, do you mind introducing yourself? Tell us where you went oh. to school, you did your graduate okay. research, and so... where you work currently. Yeah, undergrad at Washington Bible College uh, outside of Washington, D.C., THM from Dallas Theological Seminary. Then I got a Ph.D. in aesthetic studies, the uh, humanities at the University of Texas at Dallas. And since most people don't know what an aesthetic studies degree is, and some have even thought it was an anesthesia studies, (laughs) I will just (laughs) briefly explain that uh, and what that has to do with the New Testament, because that is a good question. Um, a, a, an aesthetic studies uh, PhD has is three pronged. It's uh, history, so you choose a two hundred year period of history, which for me was Ephesus from approximately one hundred BC to one hundred AD. Uh, it's a part art, and I am a novelist in part of my other life. Um, you see a little hint of it in this book when I tell a fictional story, of, you know, to try to put all the theology together in a human life. And so that meant as part of this project, not only did I have to do the research, but then I had to write a novel uh, using all the research, which I have not yet published, but maybe that'll happen anyway. And then the third part is philosophy, which is not necessarily like Kierkegaard. In this case, it was a history of ideas about something. And so I chose gender uh, going back on just how did people think about gender at the time of uh, the earliest Christians? And then how has that changed through the centuries? So. All that coming together then to look at a gendered goddess set in Ephesus with a little bit of fiction thrown in. Uh, fantastic. Yeah, I was going to say too, uh, your your writing is just, you you, you give a masterclass on writing too. I just, I loved oh. it flowed oh. so well. And um, I just thought, I thought it was easy, easy to read. But and, and one thing I was telling a friend about this too, I said, you got to read this book because it's not a long book. It's not you know, it, it doesn't require a ton of time, but you pack a lot of punch in every sentence. And as a writer myself, I'm always I'm, I'm super wordy. And I, I have to, you know, I, and I tell my students all the time, what I preach to myself is pick words that do more stuff, you know, that do ah, yeah, more yeah. work. <laughs> That's good and advice. anyway, I, I found that about your writing, too, is just very um, succinct, yeah. but sufficient. So anyway, I teach writing at DTS. Uh, oh. Seminary, so uh, yeah. I was I was conscious that I too must practice what I preach because my students might read this and say, "Dr. G, you have way too many boring <laughs> verbs here." <laughs> well, I might consider enrolling in that class. <laughs> <laughs> you, you would be That's most good. welcome. 
Um, okay, so yeah, I've got I've got several questions here, and then at the end we'll we'll tag on some listener questions too. I had some some uh, folks uh, write in and say uh, after reading the book themselves they wanted to ask some questions too. So we'll get to that at the end. Um, but let's see. My my first question here is. Um, let's see. It's kind of long, but I'll go through it. Your book is called Nobody's Mother, Artemis of the Ephesians in Antiquity and the New Testament. And this book addresses the passage in 1 Timothy 2.15, where it says that, quote, she will be saved through childbearing. And it's such an interesting passage. And you make the argument that this verse is best understood in light of the Greco-Roman religious cultural background, particularly in light of the Greek goddess Artemis. Um, so before we get into Artemis and into that verse specifically, do you mind commenting briefly about the hermeneutics of all this? And what I mean by that is maybe you could you could uh, say something to folks who say, you know, the Bible is is sufficient. And shouldn't we be able to understand the Bible without recourse to studying all the background literature? Could you comment a little bit about that? That's a great question. And uh, so a couple of things. First of all, I do think that you can get the gist of the Bible and you can certainly get the uh, who Jesus is and his, the plan of redemption without having to have any particular expertise and backgrounds. But it's a little bit like reading about the Holy Land and going to the Holy Land or seeing a black and white uh, photo of something and seeing it in color. It just brings so much more to light and and more to love to light. And, you know, we're told in the wisdom books to seek uh, wisdom like panning for gold. And I'm from the West Coast. And I got to say that is backbreaking work. That is not just something you just pick up and do. So that said, also, I just want to say uh, that when I looked at who is Artemis and is she on Paul's mind when he's writing to Timothy, my direction from that did actually did not actually come initially from the inscriptions or from archaeology, although that really supplemented. It came right out of the book of Acts, which you know, in First Timothy 3, Paul says to Timothy, it's a personal letter. He says, I left you in Ephesus to teach certain people not to teach false doctrine. So that raises the question, okay, what's the false doctrine? And sometimes we just study hard in First Timothy, you know, one through whatever, and, you know, try to figure it out. But Acts 19 gives us a lot, a lot of words that really the most words we get on any one setting for Paul. And we have two major things happening religiously that we see in the city of Ephesus. One is magic workers coming to Christ out of paganism and they're, you know, the first bonfire of the vanities and they are burning thousands and thousands of dollars worth of magic books. And then the next is sort of the disturbance with the silver workers who are upset that Paul's gospel preaching is cutting into their trade. And when I did my dissertation on this in 2013, I saw those as two separate religious forces. Since then, I totally see them as connected. There are inscriptions that connect them. There are amulets that women would wear relating to childbirth uh, that had Artemis on them. So all that to say, the Bible itself does give us hints and enough generally, uh, but to do a deep dive into the background, then you notice things like in, in Ephesians chapter six, when Paul talks about armoring up uh, against, for example, the, you know, we need the shield of faith for the arrows. And if you've seen a picture of Artemis, you know what she carries, which is a bow and arrow. So again, that's good advice. We need faith, but it also is a masterclass in contextualizing your argument, which it's hard to get that without really digging into the backgrounds to see what a master Paul is at that. Yeah. And just by virtue of, say, Timothy being a letter, right? 
Um, right. You know, and, and yes. the New Testament's full of uh, letter writing. We, we, we only get like one side of it. So we kind of have to yeah. fill in the other side of the other gaps. And it's not, and, and one thing I think it's important to realize is that not only should we fill in the gaps, but we do. <laughs> like whether we realize it or not, that's we correct. Always yes, fill in the that gaps. is absolutely correct. It's not like the liberals fill in the gaps right. and the conservatives don't. Everybody does. A great example of that is saying the shaved hair in First Corinthians. Mm. Uh, you know, a lot of conservatives say that's probably prostitution. It's not prostitution, which we now know from backgrounds. But everybody was guessing. And you you don't fault them for guessing as long as they say, we don't know, but we think. Mm-hmm. But everybody's trying to fill it in. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, let's dive into it. Can you can you tell us, well, just inter- introduce us to Artemis. Who was she? And um, so what a, yeah, solving for X is who is she? Because uh, the academic works I had read uh, mostly said she is a goddess of virginity. But if you just do a Google search, you know, the whole world says she's a fertility goddess. The History Channel show on her says, you know, or on her temple says she's a fertility goddess. And um some of the so there was some uh there were some reviews that were written of a book called I Suffer Not a Woman that I address in the book that refer to her as a fertility goddess and and people just took them down uh because some of those sources were like fourth century Jerome they're much later than the earliest Christians but the problem with that was then they just said so it wasn't Artemis at all instead of saying who was she actually So what's relevant about that is Artemis is a confirmed virgin, and uh, that doesn't mean that her followers are all women or or all virgins. Uh, The silver workers in Ephesus are men. Uh, There's a reference to a co-worker of Paul in the book of Titus named Artemis, uh, which means, you know, devotee of Artemis, which, you know, his parents had to have named him that. So uh, there's probably an interesting conversion story. But anyway, Artemis's backstory, I began by looking at who was Artemis like in the 10th century BC and then Hmm. narrowing down all my sources to that sort of 200 year period to say how much to determine how much of that still existed at the time of the earliest Christians. And just to cut to the chase, most of it did. But in Ephesus, she took on a special persona relating to midwifery. And in the same way that the Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor takes on an immigration field that the same statue in Paris does not have. Often in a city, someone will take on, a god or goddess will take on a, a certain local flavor. You see something similar to the Virgin of Gua, uh, in the Vir- Virgin of Guadalupe. It's mm. still the Virgin Mary, but the story that's more prominently told about her is the local tale. And that's also true in Ephesus. And it's not just a local story that she's a midwife. It's, uh, you know, her temple is the number one thing in the seven wonders of the world. You have Antony and Cleopatra coming a generation earlier. Uh, You have people coming from all over the empire to worship her, but not just that, to deposit money in her temple, because it's really the only bank with any guards in in this world. And so if you're super rich, you're always worried about, you know, thieves. Um, So anyway, she is well known far beyond Ephesus as Artemis of Ephesus. Uh, But the Artemis, specifically Ephesian version are, you know, you'll see statues of her with sort of bulbous appendages. The people have thought were breasts. We, uh, I think most of us now think they were magic sacks, type magic sacks, um, or contained magic-y elements. So what does that have to do with Paul? I'm guessing is your next question, right? Yeah, yeah, go go Um, ahead, yeah. 
And there are lots of hints in 1 Timothy that borrow from Artemis language. And some have asked, well, why doesn't Paul just come out and say, uh, but you won't ever see Paul naming any God other than, he. I mean, he's a good Jew. Now, Luke, he will totally mention Hermes and Zeus and the two sons of Zeus that decorated the front of a ship. And, you know, they thought we were Hermes and Zeus. He has no problem mentioning the name of false gods as long as you don't believe in them. But I don't think Paul can bring himself ever to do that. We just never see him do that. Even, you know, in the brouhaha that happens in Ephesus, they say, you know, he has not, they've not blasphemed the goddess. Uh, they've just cast serious shade by saying things like gods made with hands aren't real gods. So I found all kinds of Artemisy words throughout all of First Timothy. Hmm. Uh, Artemis is called Lord, the female version of Lord. She's called both the male and female version of God. She is called Savior. She's called uh, First Throne, the bringer of light, uh, manifest. And normally when Paul sends a greeting to, to a church or a, a person, he loads it up with, you know, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. That is not how he starts this letter. This personal letter is loaded with, I think, four of the titles of Artemis. <laughs> and then within the, the first two chapters, he's used six of them, which to me is the equivalent of talking about a certain superhero by mentioning uh, kryptonite without actually saying his name. Hmm. They wouldn't, he wouldn't know. Yeah, and you know, there's a lot of scholarly debate about whether Paul actually wrote right. you know, First Timothy anyway. Yeah. Do you think this could yeah. factor into why he sounds so different? Because it, I, I mean, actually I think he, came a, go ahead. Oh, I was <laughs> just gonna say he 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 does use different language, and it does. The, it's just different. Uh, it doesn't I, well for, for me. It, it to me, it sounds like Paul, and I think it Paul does. wrote it. I came but away more I, convinced of Pauline authorship. Oh, actually. that's interesting. Well, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I've I've never really doubted that Paul actually wrote it, but but I still admit, yeah, there's differences here that we should there account are. for. But how does your research account for that? So first of all, I think he is borrowing from the Artemis lexicon more than he does in his, you know, he wouldn't be doing that in, to the Romans. Um, <clears throat> also, he is writing a personal letter. And in the pastorals, he's probably assuming that his people are private letters and he doesn't have to give a background, unlike what he would need to do for Galatians or Philippians or Colossians mm. or Romans. So that's some of it. Uh, but also one one reason people give for Paul, it not being, you know, original Paul is because they feel like it's proto-Gnostic, which makes it too late. And I'm reading it going, no, that's not Gnosticism. That's Artemis. It's mm. don't taste, don't touch, don't marry. Like she's a confirmed virgin. And I think that is why Paul is saying to the young women, I want you to get married. Whereas he told the Corinthian women, mm. think about staying single, right? That is opposite advice. But if he's in a city where, you know, I think it was N.T. Wright who said we tend to be like what we worship. And if they're worshiping a virgin goddess, I think that explains why you have so many widows uh, in chapter five of first Timothy that he has, Paul has to break them into three groups and talk about how we're going to take care of them. And it's, that's especially interesting. If you know, the word widow did not necessarily mean you'd lost a husband. Mm. It was, uh, without a man, woman, uh, they didn't have a word just like English doesn't really have a word, or at least not a flattering one for a single gal that's never been married. And so he would use the word widow. And, and we see this in some of the ancient writing that you'll even see a church father refer to the virgins who were widows, um, right? Hmm. Uh, it's not making a statement about uh, 
consummating a marriage. It's talking, right. it's, a, it's really a more formal title. And so I think the fact that Paul is talking so much about widows in his letter to Timothy, uh, the actual phrase, don't taste, don't touch, don't marry, just a little bit of asceticism going down here. Um, that's my hunch. Sure. Yeah, no, that's really good. Um, so let's talk about the phrase in verse 15, chapter two, verse 15, first Timothy two fifteen. Yeah. Um, you know, save through, she will be, I think she will be she saved. Will be through saved child. If yeah. They, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Save through. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's right. There's cause there's a little interesting twist there. A bit of grammatical thing happening. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Let's yeah. unpack that. What's, what's been the traditional way of interpreting this passage? And Couple different are... traditions, yeah. Okay, yeah, let's go into that. One, yeah. like if you go to Romania today, you'll find pastors who tell women, you must have babies to be saved. And he is not meaning to be delivered physically. He means, you know, please God, go to heaven. Mm. <clears throat> uh, I know a woman actually whose mom had 16 kids and is, is in very dangerous health mm. because she's trying to work her way to heaven by having kids. Is this like a denominational sort of thing or is it? I think it's more a lack of pastor training in some parts of the world. Yeah. Um, hopefully that'll get better with, you know, sure. Google Translate and yeah. <laughs> all kinds of helps. But uh, that's one understanding. Another understanding that has really, I think, emerged uh, since feminism as sort of backlash against feminism is the idea that Paul tells women you know, you're not going to teach because you're under men and women are more easily deceived. That that one is from antiquity. Um, but the application then uh, of, but she'll be saved through childbearing is taught as, but she will find the channeling for her teaching through the sanctifying process of having children and raising them. And teach and presumably teaching the children. And presumably teaching them, but it's the word save. I mean, she yeah. it's future active indicative of mm. will be saved rather than well, another another explanation is that it's a reference to Mary, that women are uh they lose their reputation through Eve and you know, Adam is first, Eve is deceived, but through Mary they'll be vindicated. Challenge with that is that it's in the future, is one of them. For another, men are saved through Mary too. Uh, I mean, there. I do think it's possible that Paul is borrowing the outline of Genesis, but I think what he's doing there is he is correcting the Genesis. He's using the Genesis creation story to correct the local creation story. Which uh, one thing I didn't mention, I kind of hinted at first uh, firstness, but uh, Artemis is the first of twins. Apollo. Uh, her father cheated and her mother Lita was floating around the, actually this is where the midwife story comes from too. Her mother's floating around the empire looking for a safe place to deliver her twins and nobody wants to give her refuge because they don't want to hack off Zeus's wife, Hera, who's very powerful. So Leto is, is in danger, but she finds a little grove called Ortigia, which is you know, mythologically next to Ephesus. She delivers Artemis painlessly, which is one of Artemis's gifts. Her arrows can make it so that birth is painless or euthanized. Um, but then she writhes for nine days, giving birth to Apollo. 
And since gods and goddesses can be full grown when they're born, they might be bonsai people, they might be little, but they're, they have full use of their faculties. So uh, the thought is that Artemis is traumatized by her mother writhing for nine days and being called upon to do midwifery. And so uh, eventually, you know, she, Leto does give birth to Apollo. Uh, but Artemis is born first. And I did a search just last week to see how many times I could find Apollo's name in Ephesus. And I found exactly zero references to the second born. Yeah. Uh, so it's like he they give him Delos. They have a whole different creation story. Actually, she and here over there. But Artemis is the firstborn uh, in this city. And there's apparently some pride with that. And then... Uh, so I think Paul is basically saying not only was Adam first, but the woman was deceived. In other words, I think it has an equalizing effect, not a putting men over women effect, but lowering women to the same level as men effect. Uh, because Paul, we know Paul has a very developed uh, view of gender. We see it over in 1 Corinthians 7, where he says, yes, she comes you know, from man, but every man comes from a woman and they all come from God. I mean, I think he, you know, interdependence is, is something he stops to emphasize in, in that section. It's sometimes a neglected part of the passage, but anyway, um, I think Paul is about interdependence and he is concerned about independence. And so that word, she will be saved, uh, is singular. Uh, if they, I think he's borrowing a local saying, if we could, they didn't use quote, mark, you know, quotation marks, but I think he would if he were writing in English. Hmm. And if they uh, basically, you know, continue in faith and hope, and we know that Paul does not believe a woman goes to heaven by having babies or by works. He's made that really clear in pretty much every other uh, thing he's written. Um, and so I think what's probably happening is he is concerned. Again, he told Timothy, I'm concerned about false teaching. He tells men are husbands, you know, it's the same words. So you got to figure out by context. Um, I kind of lean toward husbands and wives in here rather than men and women, uh, partly because he's got childbirth in view. <laughs> and that right. would, in, in the context of a church, that, that would not be an assurance at all, I wouldn't think. Uh, if he, unless he's talking to married women, mm -hmm. um, I think he's concerned with with wives teaching husbands, particularly maybe where church discipline is involved. That's completely speculation, okay? But there's another word where he says, "I, I, I want uh, women or wives." Basically, he doesn't want them to teach or have or to authentane <laughs> or, or authentane is a is an infinitive. And, and we all we agree, everybody agrees what that word means, right? Too. right. <laughs> I mean, if you ask me the 15 views of that, I couldn't tell you, but but there are some kind of positive or neutral uses of it. And then one is negative is murder. I suspect, and again, this is totally a hunch. Hear me, listeners, this is my hunch, that since that word is only used in the New Testament one time and we don't see it very often, I suspect we're looking at an Artemisy word and that it has more to do with autonomy rather than authority. It's not the usual word for authority. It starts with ought, uh, mm -hmm. which, you know, in Greek can have that idea. Um, and if that's the case, it would make even more sense that he's concerned about people thinking autonomously rather than interdependently. And then the next phrase after, you know, if they continue in basically in faith and hope, he says, this is a faithful saying. And then the next line after that is if someone desires to be an elder, uh, I think we sh we should stop attaching it to that. 
and attach it back to save through childbearing. I think he's quoting a local saying. We have a hint that it's a local saying because of the grammar change from the quote and then his spin, which Paul has a big habit of doing. I ran a little study to see, does Paul usually put, this is a faithful saying before or after, and he does it both. So that doesn't really help us, but it does say it's possible to do it. it you know, Paul has done it elsewhere. Mm-hmm. I don't know, yeah, that's a and, lot of technical English stuff. <laughs> no, it's so, yeah, no, it's so good. Um, and, and I would say something about that, how how Paul uses the creation story, because he he contextualizes it often. So in Romans 5, he can talk about Adam being responsible for all the right stuff it without even mentioning eve at all in romans 5 uh, but well but don't you think i mean in all adam sinned it all didn't sin in eve they couldn't have because adam hadn't sinned yet so well, I, yeah you know, no right. i mean that that's a really good point um one thing because the, the the phrase that he uses in romans 5 something like sin entered the world through adam oh gotcha and yeah. so i mean technically yeah. if you want to get all precise it would be not just even eve but satan and oh, the, the serpent i should say but, yeah. but it seems like, but then, but then you have this emphasis on in First Timothy. You have the emphasis on on the woman and the whole right. deception thing. Yes. Yeah, so you're like, uh, which is it, Paul? <laughs> yeah. Which is it? And and I yeah. think this is where your argument has a lot of strength to it. Is that well, it's contextual. It's a different city. Yeah. They're different city. Different situation. Okay. Different questions. Hey, friends, I hope this episode is a blessing and encouragement to you. I hope that every episode of The Bible Unmuted gives you something fresh to consider and something deep to ponder. My goal is to offer food for thought, to give listeners the tools they need to be faithful interpreters of Scripture. I cherish your continued prayers for this ministry, and thanks so much to everyone who lifts me up in prayer each week. If you're finding this podcast to be helpful for your study of Scripture, consider leaving a review of the show and sharing with your friends. Perhaps even consider becoming a Patreon member. This will give you access to some cool stuff, and it helps support the podcast. You can become a patron for as little as $5 a month. Every Patreon supporter gets access to a monthly bonus episode, as well as an invitation to a book club, where we come together periodically and chat about a book that we read together. There are various levels of support, too, which will get you access to other things. You have the option to join monthly Zoom meetings with me, where we come together and discuss all sorts of fun, biblical, theological stuff. Another tier of support will get your name thrown into monthly book giveaways as well. All to say, there are lots of cool features for patrons of The Bible Unmuted. If you're interested, visit patreon.com slash thebibleunmuted or follow the Patreon link in the description for this episode. Thanks so much for your support. And, and so so, the, so could you explain just a, a little more in depth here about the role that Artemis played in antiquity in the childbirth process? Because so so you mentioned she's she's sometimes depicted with a bow and 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 she she can the hope is for women who are giving birth is that either a she'll deliver me in my delivering the baby and make it easy right. or if it's not going to be easy if I'm going to die that she'll shoot me with kill a, me painlessly yeah <laughs> yes. kill me mercilessly yeah. pa- painlessly yeah. is yeah. And, and is is that what's going on here that that perhaps part of the false teaching is that women were relying upon and then praying to Artemis for that deliverance or the mercy. I suspect, great question. First of all, anywhere else, Artemis's number one characteristic is virginity. And Ephesus, her number one characteristic is midwifery. Second, uh, you have two different statues of her. You ha- So the images are both present. 
you have the sort of the hunter with her dogs, with her bow and arrow, with a sort of hiked up skirt in places. So probably so she can run in the woods. You have that depiction in the temple of Artemis, but you also have the depiction of the woman whose legs are like bees or mummified. She has bulbous appendages, not all, all over her chest or even stomach area, but she has a smaller necklace that has the same shape. She has the signs of the Zodiac on her chest. Um, and that Artemis is I like for those who've seen the Barbie movie, I like to say it's like stereotypical Barbie and weird Barbie. <laughs> like there's a weird <laughs> Artemis, and then there's the typical one that everybody knows. They have the same backstory, just like Barbie can be, you know, an architect and the president at the same time and still be Mattel's. Uh it's a it's a weak analogy, but we have some of them in our own culture. Like you can have the same thing with different manifestations. And so Artemis in Ephesus is midwife goddess and based on amulets, based on all kinds of uh, evidence, we think that here's the thing, the number one cause of death for women in this time is childbirth. And everybody knew somebody who died and probably a family member. Think of anyone you know who's had a C-section or preeclampsia or hospitalized, and they're probably dead in this culture. And we also know that it took, I think this is Brown's argument, it took about five uh, each woman had to have five children in order to keep zero population growth. So there is a lot of pressure. And then the emperors add some incentives because they have to have an army. And that's the number one cause of death for men is war. So to keep the army, they incentivize having children and say, you know, if you're freeborn, you have to have this many. If you're a citizen, you have to have this many. But if you have, if you meet the quota, you get some freedom from male supervision. Hmm. So there is the empire that's putting pressure on you to have babies. And there is, of course, you know, your children are dying. And so if you want a legacy, uh, you have children. The number one fear is going to be death through childbirth. It's it, You've heard people scream, the walls are thin if there are walls. Uh, it's It's traumatic. And so people are going to the temple for their number one fear, which is, again, kill me painlessly with your arrows or deliver me safely. Not in that order, right? Deliver me safely, deliver my baby or deliver me painly, painlessly, but don't leave me writhing even you know, for nine days like your mother did. Uh, and then her mother didn't die, but usually that's how that ends. And so the biggest test, I think, for a newly converted Gentile woman is going to come down to, okay, do you really believe in Jesus? It's time to deliver your baby. Uh, here's where you have to really show, uh, you know, here's where the rubber meets the road. And if you think about how communal the thinking is, it's not just will uh, protecting me, but if I hack off Artemis personally, I can bring down her wrath on the whole city. So you have another kind of peer pressure of, do you not love us? Do you hate us that you refuse to, you know, worship the gods? Um, and so all kinds of pressure. You could even have a pressure that comes from uh, a paterfamilias who's got a household full of slaves and kids. And the house is supposed to worship whoever the slaveholder, uh, the house manager worships you get hints of that in the book of Acts when somebody's whole household comes to faith. So then you would really have, you know, have you personally believed? And again, how much are you going to follow Jesus and trust him? 
So I think Paul is mercifully addressing the number one fear of the uh, the women in his congregation, in Timothy's congregation, and probably the thing that is driving a lot of false teaching mm-hmm. is, you know, this is really where you have to put legs to your faith and not go to her temple and not pray to her and not wear the amulets and not do the potions or whatever and believe. And I think uh, we get a hint from Acts 19 that there are miracles happening on the other side. You think about Paul is doing signs and wonders to the point where the magic, I mean, that's what's driving the magic workers. They're like, whoa, Paul, you give Paul a handkerchief or an apron and just, you know, he doesn't have to be present. People touch it and they're healed, which is, you know, you see this sometimes in missions, even today, right? What's the local God? You saw it in the Exodus. What's the local God? Then God proves himself more powerful. And I suspect that what he's telling Timothy is your local god is Artemis, they're not going to die in childbirth if they have faith, if they obey, if they prove themselves faithful. He's not promising that for everyone for all time. He's not saying that, you know, there are plenty of women who've died in childbirth that were faithful women through the centuries. I don't think he's making that kind of a promise any more than I think we should say our preachers can take a handkerchief and take it to somebody and promise that they're healed. Right. And so do you, are you aware of any, like any, were there, were there rituals done through the childbirthing process that they would invoke Artemis's presence or would it yes. be like going yeah. to temple prior to giving birth? And could you expound on some of that? There is some work being done, especially in first, uh, first in Thessalonica and, and uh, the thinking that that Paul is actually presenting himself as the midwife uh with the Thessalonian Christians like Paul is the, he's tuned into this concern and showing that either the Christian family or Jesus himself are going to meet this need we there are some amulets i didn't do a ton of research on on the exact rituals others are doing that work though and there's some academic work being done related to that that yeah there people would go to the temple of artemis anytime they wanted something <laughs> Um, and she was considered very connected with transitions. So you would see a retiree, uh, let's say you're retiring carpenter, you're going to take her your best carpentry tools at the end of your time. Um, and lots of, lots of people named for Artemis, lots of, uh, I mean, this is part of why we see a connection with her and childbirth. Uh, but it goes all the way back to, you know, Homer and the early writers are are talking about these euthanizing arrows. Uh, they're talking about the, the painless arrows. And, you know, somebody contemporary with the earliest Christians is saying, you know, the reason that Artemis's first temple burned down three centuries ago was because Alexander the Great was being born and she's a midwife. <laughs> she wasn't going to miss that important birth. So, you know, and since she's not on the present, she had to choose the more important event, which was not protecting her temple. It was you know, officiating at his birth, which our God could do both. Right. Say, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that makes sense. And and I think, I think just for listeners to know, like, um, if they're not already aware, we can't overemphasize and over-exaggerate the importance of Artemis worship in Ephesus, especially. I mean, it was outside oh, of Ephesus, of course, oh but Ephesus yeah. was like the guardian 
it was. In the you know Temple Guardians. The yeah, temple actually, was... that was one of its titles. Yeah, Paros yeah. was mm-hmm. it's, it's guardian of the temple of an emperor. There's an emperor there. You know, his temples there, and then in fact, that's why the city is sometimes called twice Neokoros, twice Temple Guardian. You've got both Artemis and the emperor being worshipped there. Right, and 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 that became a and they, they well with with Caesar worship they would compete for these titles of guardian and 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 yes, but but right. it wasn't monotheistic in that sense by, it by was no not. means so that's right plenty of other gods and goddesses but the but right. you know as important as Caesar worship was Artemis was uber important she was second only to Zeus in the entire empire yeah and that that's I mean. And when you think of Ephesus too, just the influence the city had upon Asia and and even the empire, what was it like the fourth largest in the empire, right? Is that right? Or? I think that's right. And yeah. and it's very much like uh, New York City is to the U.S. in that it was the harbor city. You know, Rome was more like Philadelphia. Mm. Uh, it might have been the center of, you know, where the emperors were, but this is where the harbors were. This is where the trade happened. I think that's why Paul camped out there so long. You could catch a boat to Egypt. You could go to you know, all over Spain, you could go all over the world from Ephesus. And that meant you had people coming from all over the world. And because of the draw of the temple, uh, it, you know, it was easy poaching. <laughs> right, right. And 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 what you said, too, it, it drives that point home even more uh, with Artemis almost being like, a, I mean, the, the temple being almost like a bank as well. Right. So we yeah. don't really, you know, I don't yeah. deposit my my money at my church. <laughs> right. We don't do that. Oh. So. Yeah. But but back then they would have not they wouldn't they wouldn't have delineated between church and state functions. No, no they wouldn't. Way. They wouldn't have even thought of sacred and secular. I mean, right. it was all completely morphed together. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they would have altars in their homes, and you know, you, there are stories about Artemis where she doesn't care if you worship the other gods as long as you do not forget her. She will take you down. <laughs> she <laughs> has been known to kill people if they slight her, but as long as they remember her. Uh, it, it's not, it's not like our God who says I'm it. And so for, for love's sake, I demand that you worship only me for your own good. Uh, that was not at all the mentality. And, and she, all. from the, the research that you've done and you put in the book, I mean, I walked away thinking she's very vicious. Is that a good characterization? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so what happens sometimes is because Wonder Woman, who I love, is based on Artemis, we think she's pro-women and she's friendly and she's clever. Artemis was more likely to take out women than men, uh, mainly because she's hanging out with them more. But still, uh, she did not hate men. She had loved, uh, I think it was Orion, but he died and she never loved another uh, she would take you down if you accidentally came upon her bathing and she was pretty rigid about her virginity. And I mean, she would kill you. Uh, so she was one to be feared and, you know, also considered compassionate, but you better not cross her. She it, was vindictive. Yeah, that, that was definitely the, the takeaway for me, too. Um, when And when she would perform mercy killings on on women who were giving birth or whatever, was that more out of compassion for them? Is that the way it's depicted? Or is it more like, oh, I, because of her past experience with her mother and the birth of Apollo, is that why? I, she... You know, they nothing is really said about her motives. Okay. Uh, it's just she had the power. So that's what we're going to pray for. I think that we will get more. We're starting to look more at some of the first century novels 
And because they have people going to Artemis's temple, so we're, we're sussing out some of the things that are just assumed for the readers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we may get a little more, uh, uh, but to my knowledge, nobody's really dealt with what, you know, what was her motive mm-hmm. uh, if she killed. So um, back to the fertility goddess stuff. Um, she, she's, I mean, you look anywhere and she's called a fertility goddess by a lot of people. Is it because of the relationship with the childbirthing? Because in my mind, prior to reading your book, I had always thought for whatever reason, stuff I've read in the past, that the save through childbearing had something to do with the Artemis cult because mm-hmm. she's particularly interested in 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 the birthing process because she's a fertility goddess. And so I, in my mind, I always connected fertility goddess, that title with the birthing process, not so much with what we might think actually fertility would be. But but honestly, this is one thing I took away from your book and learned is I didn't think accurately enough about the fer- what what actually a fertility goddess is, 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 you know, I just totally connected with childbirth, but that's not correct. We need to yeah, think of right. fertility the goddess. between a doula and a mother yes. giving birth. Yeah, right. That's right. But I didn't make those connections. I just sort of sure. went with it and yeah. got, and so, but that, anyway, company, trust me. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's funny because uh, I have a book coming out in February where I call her uh, a goddess of fertility or something. And, and yeah, it, it's it's great. No, 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 it's good. I I it well, when I write stuff, I I I in my mind I think this is a this is a document of Matt's journey as I'm dealing yeah, with material. Absolutely. And I still and, have And so with this book, I expect people from other mm-hmm. disciplines to come and tweak what I've done. And I hope so, because we're committed to the truth, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the ultimate absolutely. goal is not to keep your pride from hurting, but to be finding the truth so we can understand scripture. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and so, but just to, on the fertility piece, it's not accurate to just connect fertility goddess to the birthing process, even though those might be conceptually connected in some way. Yeah. But tell can, just for the audience sake, tell us why definitively she cannot be called a fertility goddess. Well, first of all, the actually the root of the fertility goddess idea has been looking at her statue that has bulbous appendages, and Jerome calls her many-breasted and fruitful. And you know, Jerome is like fourth century. He is probably doesn't know anybody who's worshipped her, and no fault to him. He's just coming on the scene a lot later, and we've conflated everything that anybody ever wrote about Artemis, and and so. Uh, the connection to seeing those as breasts looks like is really coming out of Christian uh, apologetics early on. And they look like breasts. And so the logic is what are breasts for? They're for milk and nurturing and therefore, you know, (laughs) fertility and, and health. And so that was really the logic. It was looking at Artemis and not re- not knowing what we were looking at. Our visual literacy on that, we, we didn't have much to go on. Um, and we were also thinking very Europeanly instead of more Hittite, uh, Anatolian, right? Because that's where most of our scholars, are, you know, self-included, right? Um, and so that was really the root of it was just looking at looking at the statue. I I had a copy, uh, there's a picture in the book of the diopet. Uh, it's been called the diopet, that, you know, the image that fell from heaven, that the Liverpool museums are labeling that. And I think it very well could be uh, the, what fell from heaven. It's, it was taken out of the Ephesus temple and brought by the Brits over to their museum during the archaeology. But 
uh, I had one reader take one look at that and say, oh, that's a fertility goddess. I'm like, it's shaped like a female. <laughs> that's about it. Uh, so there is also this tendency, I'm not sure where it came from, but anything having to do with the Roman Empire, we think sex, fertility, temple prostitution, none of which is there a shred of evidence that it exists. But the suggestion got in our heads and then it got into our 18th century art. So we've seen it in art museums and we've connected the Romans totally with debauchery. Um, and, you know, every city has its debauchery, but the inscriptions in Ephesus are much more like the Junior League of Dallas, which is basically the rich wives who are doing good in the world. <laughs> you know, they don't have to work, so they're raising money for good causes. And in a world that doesn't have a tax base that is going to buy you a new gymnasium, then you call upon one of the rich women and she gets a nice big fat inscription on it. Um, so anyway, all that to say, it came, it was rooted in a misunderstanding early on of what her, what was on her chest. Um, but also it's completely inaccurate to call her a fertility goddess because she was a virginity goddess hmm. and was not into marriage and was completely not into sex uh, and pretty vicious about it. So it, it just doesn't match the data unless you really want to qualify what in the world you mean by fertility goddess. Right. Yeah. No, that's really good. Um, so what, one more last, uh, one more question for me, and then we'll get to some a couple of listener questions. Um, back to first Timothy two, one thing that I've noticed in, in um, the egalitarian complementarian debates is, you know, there's a lot of focus on that. Uh, the, the stuff about, you know, women should not teach and, uh, usurp or depending on who you are, usurp authority, right. um, or have authority if you're a complementarian. Um, but but what was always interesting to me, just my observation, is how some complementarians they wouldn't always address the childbearing thing as if it was part of the whole package. And and that's one interesting thing about your work here is that you're saying, well, if I'm reading you correctly, is that no, this all has to do with that, right? All, all of it. it. And you have to have passage. the whole yep. package. Yep. And, yep. and the Amazon women come into play here a little bit. Can, really, can you can you tell us, yeah. just kind of tease us with what what's up with the Amazon women? What are they related to? And, sure. and, and there's another reason. I mean, would we connect yeah. them with fertility? No, we would not. And they're mm. very, very connected to Artemis. So in the mythology, the ancient mythology, you have the Amazons, you know, camping out around you know, the uh, Artemis birthplace, you have uh, a very strong connection with them in the city's founding. And I was walking through Ephesus, actually, the first time I went there and saw, a, you know, a stone story that told the story of the city. And I saw the Amazons in the story. And, you know, they're part of the city's founding story. And I said, oh, so this is like fourth century. And they're like, oh, no, 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 no. This is, <laughs> it was basically within a hundred years of Paul. So we know that people around the time of the earliest Christians were connecting the Amazons with the city in the same way they're connecting Artemis with the city. And in the mythology from very far back, the, the two are connected. And uh, we have treated the Amazons like they were totally mythological um, but, you know, if you just Google Smithsonian Magazine about them or uh, National Geographic about them, you'll see that they found graves uh, in the, around the Black Sea. 
that uh, have warrior women and uh, they're buried with their weaponry and there are no men around. And it's not that they hated men. <clears throat> they just did not associate with them other than to copulate and then give back the baby boys and keep the girls and raise them. And so they're a thing and they are said by Pausanias, an early geographer, uh, that, that they camped around the Temple of Artemis and sort of made that their home and were big devotees of Artemis. They're all single. Uh, you know, they're, they only do childbirth so that they don't, their, their line doesn't disappear. Hmm. I said, that was my last question. Just a little quick follow-up. Okay. Keep going. Um, the, um, so back, kind of back to that, the context there, you mentioned this earlier, I think that the point of Paul's prohibition is not to de, de value women or to put them under men exactly. but it's to bring equality to the situation yes. and and so in light of that and and you give you know you give the arguments and you have a whole section in your book about all that that whole passage but what do you hope you contribute to the complementarian egalitarian debate um how, how do you yeah what, what's your hope in that like um how do you how do you want to and, and full That's disclosure a- I'm, I'm an egalitarian myself and and I've and really what's funny is not to get into all this, but the reason I became an egalitarian was not so much because of the egalitarian arguments, but because of what I perceived to be the weakness of complementarian arguments, because I didn't see how how their arguments could account for all the data, right? Um, and so that that's just my position. But um, but what do you hope to contribute to the to those debates? Yeah, that's a good question. The first thing I really hope to contribute to the whole thing is that both sides will quit calling her a fertility goddess. Cool. <laughs> okay? yeah, yeah. Um, well, it, you've it done just, a good and, job in arguing. Thank you. That's so good. Yeah. Like I, I titled it, you know, nobody's mother, not what does say through childbearing mean, because that's the bigger takeaway for me, because it's embarrassing when we're around historians uh, that so many of us are still calling her that. And if you just pick up any classic mythology book they're they're not going to be describing her that way. Um, so that's, that's the first thing that's both, I, I know it was, it was the founders of Christians for Biblical Equality who were first writing about her as a fertility goddess. And then they just got so trounced in the reviews because their sources were fourth century. And so that ended the discussion for a long time. And it really, it was that trip I took to Ephesus going, okay, we might've, we might've thrown out too much of the baby with the bathwater. It's true. She wasn't a fertility goddess, but she's still here. and the Amazons are here and they're, and they're not, they're not interdependent with men. Um, and so, and then, so then I had to know what was happening at the time of the earliest Christians. Um, one thing that I hope is that you wouldn't think in the year 2022, I would still be saying this, but that for people who were taught like me, that a woman's only highest calling is having babies and staying home. And then I was devastated with 10 years of infertility and have been told I have the gift of teaching and to be told that I could only use that in the context of a nuclear family was devastating. Um, And it was a spiritual crisis. And then it just didn't fit with the rest of scripture at all. It's like, if that's true, why would Paul tell the virgins over in Corinth, you know, think about staying single. That that just doesn't fit. Um, And so I hope that instead of, uh, instead of being told that motherhood is the highest calling, 
we will all teach that following Christ is the highest calling. And that is going to look a lot of different ways. Um, I think of somebody telling Beth Moore to go home. He did not say go back to teaching women. He told her to go home and it was used pejoratively. And it's still, that still happens a lot. And so you, again, you wouldn't think I'd have to say, stop telling women that their only place is home, but that's, that's a really big goal for me is that both sides, well, I don't know any egalitarians who taught that, but there's been a certain strain of complementarianism that has really emphasized that. Mm -hmm. And then I hope that another thing that it will do is it will help us look at a statement like, uh, I hope, I hope we'll have a better hermeneutic, all of us, looking at a statement like uh, Adam was first, which is a narrative statement. We will not look at that as a principle statement, right? Uh, right, like yeah. that. And and I think that we need to grow in our hermeneutic of narrative and our understanding of how Paul uses narrative, and to stop making a principle of something when he's giving a story, saying this is that. Mm-hmm. And and I, and, and I hope it'll set women free to use their gifts. Yes, absolutely. And and I feel like the church has well not the whole church, but certain segments of evangelicalism. And I'm only picking on evangelicals because yeah. it's sort of been my tribe, <laughs> no, that's right? Okay. It's, it's an in-house yeah. conversation. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. I feel like we have robbed ourselves of so much wisdom because we've silenced half the church <laughs> for so long. Well, even what's funny, more than that, because I think you you could um, do, a, do a count on any given Sunday, men and women, there are probably more women in the church, you know? And many, in many occasions, I feel like we've just robbed ourselves because we've not recognized the spiritual giftings on women because of really, really bad exegesis, you yeah. know. And, and then thought we were patting ourselves on the back, thinking, good job yeah. on us. We had all male greeters this morning. We had all male X, Y, Z this morning. And you're like, that, that the irony that we call that complementarity. Mm-hmm. Uh, Right. No, we need each other. We need right. each other. That is yeah. rooted right in Genesis. And both sides mm-hmm. can say, oh, yes and amen to that. Yeah. That's right. That's right. I, that's I, that's one of the many reasons I love your book is because I think it I think it will set people free. And it, it's and it's it's going to force people back to the sources and 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 say, OK, you know, we need to we need to ask these tough questions. What do the sources actually say? What if we just assume they've said? And and then third importantly, what are we going to do about it? You know? So I think, I think that's well, an important thank piece. You. I hope so. That's my prayer for sure. Absolutely. Well, just a, a couple of listener questions, if that's okay. Um, so Edward wants to know, have you thought of doing your own translations of the various letters to people in Ephesus? What will it take to get inscription data used in translations or commentaries? I th- I th- I'm assuming are two you mean different questions. They are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you no, want to talk about one or two? I, sure, I'll talk about both of them. First of all, okay. no, I'm not planning to do my own translation. And the reason for that is my, what obviously I, I do Greek work, but what I think I bring to this is that I am not a Greek scholar as much as I'm more of a historian. And so I'm going to stick to my lane. <laughs> That's, sure. you know, I, I have a new translation from N.T. Wright sitting here and I can't wait to read it. And we're going to leave it to some some of these folks. Um, and what was the, the next question? Um, yeah, so uh, let's see. What will it take to get inscription data ah, used in translations yeah. or commentaries? Yeah. 
Oh, may it be, brother. Um, <laughs> I think, first of all, that's part of why you will notice in my writing on here, I am talking a lot about the inscriptions and my footnotes are hailing. Come on, people. You know, there's a lot of really good data here. I tried to make it as accessible as possible. I think it's going to take more of us putting that at the popular level. But also, I think it's going to take advisors to seminary students. I'm having an advisory meeting tonight with a bunch of students to say, hey, when you start thinking about what you want to do your PhD in, if you need to be an expert in something that nobody else is and and blaze new ground, inscriptions, hmm. <laughs> find find a niche there. Uh, it, it is a wide open field. We got a half a million left that we haven't even incorporated into our lexica. Uh, and it's exciting. They're just so the Romans love to inscribe, to write things in stone and on walls. We that gives us a context that's very hard to tinker with. No, nobody's saying those got changed through time. And that's the best kind of word use, right? You've got it in context. So what will it take? It will take more people doing it and talking about it. It'll take more advisors advising it that way. Uh, it will take more of uh, just, I think, just awareness that it's even a possibility. Great. Um, okay, so Jill has a question. How did the behaviors of women in Ephesus and other areas embedded in Artemis worship, how did the behaviors of women fit with a culture that was supposedly so patriarchal? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a really good question. I don't think that what's happening is that women are rebelling in a patriarchal culture. I think one one factor is money. You have a very rich city and you, money. Think about a United States president who had a daughter down the hall. <laughs> okay, not an elected official, but incredible amount of power and totally towed to the patriarchy. But because of money and social status, you get around things, you get away with things. And I think that's why there are so many references to wealth in First Timothy and Paul's concern about it and how to channel it appropriately. Uh, so that's one thing is you just had very powerful wealth in the females that are connected with the city's biggest income producer. So sometimes this gets taught like there's this whole feminazi group of people that Paul is trying to settle down. I don't see that. It's also, again, it's not a women's cult. It is, you know, the silver workers are men. You have men named after Artemis, lots and lots of male names that are derivatives of the name Artemis. So this idea that it was a girl power cult, you know, some of that might come from Wonder Woman. Uh, but it's more that it there's there's an independence mentality i think and paul is concerned for interdependence wonderful well listeners the the um the book is called nobody's mother artemis of the ephesians in antiquity in the new testament and it's hot off the press this came out what october 10th october, right yeah. yeah yeah that's great so um just a two three weeks ago um well uh, Dr. Glan, thank you so much for being on the show with us today and yeah. sharing your Thanks research. Thanks to your with listeners. Us. Good questions. Appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, highly recommend everybody to check the book out. I'll put a link in the show notes so that people can um, click it and find it and um, and read it. And it's a great book. I, 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 it's my favorite book I think of the year that I've read because wow. it's been. No, it really is true. Uh, I'm I'm excited about it. I had 
as a father of two two daughters, it's I think this is super important. Um, and as a father of two sons, it's super important because we need, yeah, ev- like you right. said earlier, we need everybody involved in the work of ministry. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for what you've done. You've taught us a lot. That's really kind. Thank you. That's the end of today's episode. And thanks again for listening to the Bible unmuted. If you like this podcast, consider rating it on your podcast platform, subscribing to it and sharing with your friends. You can also support the podcast by becoming a Patreon member. Go to patreon.com slash thebibleunmuted or simply find the link to the Patreon page in the description for this episode. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, friends.